The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson. Welcome to season three. We took a break, and now we're back. While I didn't go on vacation per se, I did get a long weekend in Maine where I took a baseline assessment of the lobster and blueberry situation. I'm happy to report that both were delicious. Today, I have something special for you, and I know I say that every week, but truly hang with me. We have never had a farmer on the show before, and in this episode, I share my conversation with Corey Whitman, someone I used to work with in the Senate who now runs her family farm in Idaho. Corey manages the human resource, finance, marketing, and administrative functions of the operation. She is a graduate of the University of Idaho and holds an MS in agribusiness from Kansas State University. As mentioned, she worked in agricultural policy in Washington, D.C. back when I knew her, including positions with the U.S. Grains Council, American Farm Bureau Federation, National Association of Wheat Growers, and she served as legislative assistant to former Senator Larry Craig. She spent five years in Thailand as founding director of Breakthrough Thailand, a community development organization working toward prevention of sex trafficking before returning to the primary role on the farm in 2015. Corey is super smart about sustainability, including practices like no-till farming and use of cover crops that her father started before they were really a thing. She's a fierce advocate for farmers being part of the climate solution, having written op-eds and testified on the Hill. I will link all those goodies in the show notes, as well as a podcast appearance she made with her father, Dick Whitman. Is there a guest you'd like to hear? A topic you'd like us to cover? An event where you'd like a member of our team to speak, including our executive director, Bob Inglis? Our doors and emails are open to your suggestions, invitations, and ideas. And now, my conversation with Corey Whitman. So listeners, welcome back. I am so happy to be, I'm sitting face-to-face with her, you are not, but Corey Whitman is somebody that I overlapped with on Capitol Hill, and um, we go farther back than I thought we did. So it's so nice to see you, Corey. Thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Great to see you as well. So, Corey, tell our listeners where you are, what your farm produces, and we'll just start there, where you are and what your farm produces. Absolutely. Well, I live in north central Idaho, out just about a half an hour outside of a town called Lewiston. And currently sitting in our farm office out of the 100-degree weather. Um, so we, we have a diversified crop, cattle, and timber operation that I manage in partnership with one of my cousins and a brother-in-law. Uh, and my husband also farms with us as well. I roped him in. And we grow a variety of, of crops ranging from wheat, barley, peas, lentils, chickpeas, canola, mustard, flaxseed, if it grows in this area, we've probably tried it. Um, if it doesn't grow in this area, we've probably tried it as well. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the benefit to having a diversified crop like that or set of crops? On the, on the cropping side, we've, you know, the, as the history of the farm, we have 
always tried to kind of be on the leading edge of conservation practices and have recognized that our soils and the resilience of our soils do a lot better with a with a rotation. So the rotation that we have is we do a winter, a winter cereal, winter wheat, usually a spring cereal, either wheat or barley. Um, and then we have an oil seed, which um, has some interesting agronomic practices that it helps your, um, which I won't get into all the details, but it has some very, very beneficial soil health practices. Um, and then we follow that with another winter wheat. And then we have a pulse crop. So either a pea or a lentil or a chickpea. Um, and those are actually nitrogen fixing crops. So those are, putting, those are putting nitrogen back into the soil that has been taken up by the wheat crops. And then we can start back over with winter wheat. So your family who owns and operates this farm, starting with your dad, who I went to the hill with a million years ago, um, he, it sounds like you have been doing conservation practices before conservation practices were the thing. Yes, sometimes for, for better or for worse. So he was on um, the kind of the leading edge in, in this area for the adoption of no-till technology, which is reduce, reducing your tillage, no, no plowing. Um, I tease now that the first time I saw a plow, I was probably in middle school and I didn't know what it was. It was on somebody else's operation. That was his proudest day. Um, but he was on, in a group of farmers in this area that started the what's called the Pacific Northwest Direct Seed Association. And their goal was to increase adoption of this practice in this area. Um, we are, if, if you could take a tour of our farm, there's is no flat surface other than the kitchen table. And we argue that's even, even not the case in some <laughs> um, We have very, very steep hillsides uh, that are prone to erosion and the advent of no-till and reducing reducing the passes over the ground and, and not having that um, black soil turned up that's prone to washing away with rains. So that was the primary driver to adopt that technology. The byproduct of that was actually dovetails into the climate discussion um, because of its ability to sequester carbon. Fewer passes over the field obviously is going to reduce emissions on one side. It's also maintaining the soil organic matter on, top, on the surface, and then you're able to sequester that carbon rather than turning the soil over and releasing it into the atmosphere. So going back to when you were working for Senator Larry Craig, and um, we overlapped while I was with Senator John Warner, back in those days when we were working on climate legislation, it felt like the agriculture community as a whole was sort of split. You had a small component, including your father at the time who was running your farm, who were interested in looking at best practices and ways that um, farmers could be part of the climate discussion um, when it comes to solutions. And then you had a whole host of people who were saying, no, 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 this is going to be bad for farmers. Where is the debate today? And where do you think some of the challenges are to um, bringing more folks to the table? Or are they there? And it's just a, a discussion about solutions now. Well, I, th I think you bring up a really interesting point and it's been, it's, it's been fascinating to watch the evolution from, you know, like you said, 10 to 15 years ago, when any talk of climate change was almost taboo in, in the agriculture industry. You know, if you went to a, a farm organization meeting and, and wanted to talk about climate, it was just a non-starter. You'd be laughed out of the room. Um, and I think that comes, came from, at that time, a fear that it was going to go the regulation route. Um, nobody wanted to be regulated into adopting a practice that was going to be costly and, and not productive for their operation. 
Um, and I think that, you know, those are legitimate fears at that time. But what's happened is, is you know, the tsunami of public opinion related to climate on one side and farmers in the last 10 years seeing firsthand some of the impacts of a change in climate, be it wet or wets, cold or colds, hot or hots, dry or dries, um, that, that even I have experienced having been back on the farm for five, six years. We've seen that whole range of extremes on our operation. I think that has brought a lot of farmers to the table to say, what's actually going on here and how can we be part of the solution? And that change, that change in mind frame from the fear of regulation to, oh, we, we actually can be at the table to, to provide solutions has been a game changer. Um, and now farmers are, are wanting to proactively engage in the discussion. And you'll see that through um, the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance that was formed just over a year ago. It consists of groups from you know, a whole range of groups, from farmers, ranchers, forest owners, agribusiness, and then you also have sportsmen and environmental advocates, environmental groups in the same coalition that are joining together to come up with climate smart policies that can be spoken with a common voice. I mean, this is this is a historic change from anything that's been done in the past in terms of policy. Um, and I think that's been a really powerful that's been a powerful change that has actually led to some progress getting um, getting climate policy moved forward. Well, I think that that's interesting that you brought up the sportsmen because anyone who spends time with in the land or in nature has a sense, right? Um, we've heard it from people who say we can't ice fish at this time of year like we used to be able to because it doesn't get cold enough or even my old boss, Senator Warner, was moved to act on climate change when he went to Idaho many years ago with your old boss. And he asked the Forest Service to take him to his old base camp that he'd worked at as a young man. And the pine trees had been decimated by a bark beetle that the weather doesn't get cold enough to kill the beetle. And so that was one thing that really kind of sparked his interest in engaging on climate change. So when you are a farmer and you not only are you seeing the changes in the land, but you're relying on a certain pattern, right? A certain climate pattern, mm -hmm. then it seems who knows better, right? Than the people who are out there every day testing the soil, seeing, you know, you said you're having a heat wave um, listeners when at the point that Corey and I are recording the Pacific Northwest is about to broil with temperatures that I read were like 40 degrees higher than your normal this time of year. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, we're going to have a week of over 100 degree temperatures um, in the beginning of or the end of June, which is almost unheard of. What do you do for your crops in that kind of case? Or is there nothing you really can do with that? Pray. <laughs> <That's all. laughs> and we, and we bump up the schedule for harvest. That's pretty much all we can do at this point. So yeah. things are burning up in the field and people are bracing already for a severe wildfire season. Um, I've put more fire insurance on than I ever had in my life um, for, for, for our crops and we've already had one forest fire um, from a lightning storm three or four weeks ago again unheard of to have um, fire go through a forest that's usually green and lush this time of year so we are seeing some some pretty severe impacts of of the drought this year do you think another reason why you're seeing more folks from the agricultural community come to the table is what we were just talking about you're seeing the changes on the land but also a younger generation of people are in the jobs you have now. And, you know, it seems that when we look at public opinion polling, 
the younger generations seem to understand climate change better than the older ones. There's less resistance. Do you think that that's at play at all? I think that that is that definitely could play a role. Um, Maybe not in your family where your dad was on the cutting edge. In our family, we were always trying to keep dad, you know, grounded a little bit. But in in reality, we've always been, we have, we have a foot in both camps. One is we want to be stewards of the land, the best possible stewards of the land to be able to maintain the farm and be able to pass it on to the next generation. I now have a 10 month old son. So that's more top of mind than it was, you know, two years ago. (laughs) On the other hand, you know, from a, and that's from a, an environmental and soil health and resiliency of the land. We want this to be a productive, um, a productive resource moving forward. On the other hand, in order for that to happen, it also has to be economically viable. And so everything that we look at is through those two lenses together, where we're not going to do something that's purely purely good for the environment, but will destroy the farm economically. And we're not going to do something economically that's going to destroy it environmentally. So that's, that's one of the fascinating things about climate smart technologies and agriculture is that they very, very clearly meet both of those criteria. Um, we have found through our experience in converting to no-till, you know, it took a few years where we were kind of the laughing stock of our neighbors because the fields look different. There's, you know, there's stubble when everybody else's is black dirt. Um, but then, you know, three, four, five, 10, 20 years down the road, if this drought were to have happened 20 years ago, we wouldn't have any crop to harvest. Wow. And we're still looking at hopefully crossing my fingers a just a slightly below or average crop um, with very, very little rainfall and this most severe drought in 30 years. Um, so the resiliency of our soil has improved drastically through the advent of that no-till, through the no-till practices. What we're looking at now is what do we do next? What is that next level? That's of, what I was going to ask you. What What do you do next or what else do you do aside from no-till? And, and that's where we're scratching our heads. If you have an answer... <laughs> We are very much in experimental mode where we've been experimenting for several years with cover cropping strategies, um, some intercropping, some biostimulants, and you you name it, we've we've probably experimented with it. One of the challenges to adopting some of these things that we know on paper are, are good for your soil health and biodiversity and a number of benefits, the the challenge is economically, how do we adopt how do we start adopting those strategies on a small, medium, and large scale across our operation when we are young farmers trying to make payments, buying out the, you know, buying out the retired members, you know, looking at half a million dollar investments in a piece of equipment because you have to have it because you can't pull a no-till drill with anything else. Um, And so we have to, we have to be able to adopt those strategies in a way that can still be economically viable and that's one of the biggest challenges to adoption is for farmers like us in our situation that are that are looking at the bottom line and saying, we know we want to do this, but how do we do it? And how do we do it in a way that's not going to break the farm, you know, until we can start realizing some of those agronomic benefits down the road. Are there federal bills or policies that you're looking at that you think could be helpful? There are a number of things that are already existing that are starting to recognize more climate, more quote unquote climate smart um, technologies. So incentive based programs through the USDA, through whether it's through CSP, the Conservation Stewardship Program, um, they're starting to provide more incentives for climate smart technologies. Um, so there are some existing programs that are starting to recognize, but that's, but they're, 
their cents on the dollar for what we have to spend to do it. So it, it's somewhat helpful, but it's not necessarily enough to get a lot of people over that hump of how do we actually tackle this. Um, the other thing that's coming down the pike that you're going to hear a lot of talk about are carbon credits or a carbon bank or um, carbon trading, carbon, you know, all, all of the carbon words. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we've been looking at for a long time. It's been a real challenge um, because the the cost of going in, there's just a lot of uncertainties where there's not a lot of clarity from the farming side of how those markets can be structured, what the payments look like. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. You're, if you're talking about carbon banking, for example, if I think, if I'm guessing at what you are getting at, that would be where farmers, as you were talking about no-till, right? You're not farming your land so that you're keeping the carbon sequestered, but you're being paid to sequester that carbon. So that is a piece of it, yes. So with the carbon bank, basically, and I won't get too much into the weeds on carbon bank. I'll back out a little bit and just say, you know, carbon sequestration in general. How how do we as farmers look at some of these practices that we're doing? with the goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and sequestering more carbon, how do you measure it? How do you validate it? How do you make sure it's durable over time? How do you make sure that it's marketable? And those those are the key questions that we're trying to ask and get answered in the marketplace right now. So timely, um, the um, U.S. Senate just this week passed the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which yes. is- Senator Bronx bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we've- you know, I've, I've been a part of kind of advocating for that and saying this is a, it's not, no, no initial efforts going to be perfect or all encompassing of the, you know, the panacea for all of our climate problems. But this is a major first step to creating some structure and validity and giving farmers some certainty about what this could look like on their operations. Um, you know, right now on our farm, if we wanted, if somebody said, how much carbon do you sequester on an acre? I would say, I don't know. What tests do we use? Who do you want to validate it? Where do we send it? How do we trust the results? How do we know it's going to be there next year if we do this other practice? Like, there, there are so many questions. And put housing that in the USDA to help us answer some of those questions and give some of that structure is going to be a game changer. So I think that's that's really going to be helpful to have USDA there as, as, a, um, as a referee creating standards and a certification process that will allow farmers to participate in those markets where you can actually monetize some of those practices and be paid for them more than just cents on the dollar for what it's costing us to, to put those into practice. Corey, do you do anything or put thought into food security? I know that's something that I personally worry about the way our crops are going to shift over time and hopefully not in our lifetime, but maybe, and you said you have a 10 month old, Mine um, are a little bit older, but still you think about future generations and can we feed the, I and mean, it sounds so dramatic, can we feed the world? But I think it's serious consideration that we need to be talking about. Do I give it thought? Absolutely. Do I have answers? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that I did. Um, you know, you, depending on the, the old adage is, you know, we can grow enough, but can we get it to the people that need it? That's, can we grow it in the places where it's most needed? And I think that's one of my fears with climate change. You know, those areas that were already food insecure are going to be the most affected by a change in climate. And that is, that is something that we need to continue to, to be aware of and 
pushes us toward more urgency for acting on acting on some of these climate questions now, rather than kicking the kicking the can to the next generation. If we have listeners who want to learn more about um, how farmers participate or can participate on these issues, is there any sort of resource that you can point them to, um, whether it's a website or maybe it's the USDA, but if do you have any kind of other information that we could share with our listeners? I think two different sides of it. One is on the policy side, if you're wondering kind of what are you know, what's happening out there and what are the next steps for, for getting progress from a policy standpoint. I think the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance is a, is a wealth of not resources, um, pr- partly because it's representing such a broad spectrum. Um, it's going to have it's going to have information on crop farming, livestock and dairies, forestry practices. You know, it can give you all the information on what some of the things, what some of the newest technologies are coming out of those areas and what progress is being made, what's already currently being done and what is in like the research pipeline for next steps um, that can be really fascinating from a practice standpoint. Um, the USDA is also a great resource. Your, your local um, local FSA offices, you know, to explore what are what are some things that we can be putting into practice or what are some programs already available to help us put those things into practice, be it transitioning to no-till for those that haven't or cover cropping practices at, for, for livestock and dairies, you know, it's, it's manure management and emissions management um, and forestry, it's better forest management practices. There's, there is a wealth of information out there and accessible if you're looking. Well, I have to say, I'm just so grateful that businesses like yours exist, which we listeners talked a little bit before we started recording about how her her farm is family owned, but it is not a mom and pop farm. You're a bigger farm than that, but not maybe the size of, I don't even know, I don't even know the name of a big kind of factory farm feels like a derogatory term. So I don't want to use that, but I think you know what I mean, like a big farm. Big farm. That's so technical. Anyway, I just think it's so great to have people who, you know, and this is intergenerational now, and I'm sure you're going to teach your practices down to your son. Hopefully he won't decide he wants to go do something else, like um, (laughs) go be an actor or do something totally different. (laughs) Let him feel the love of the land in him. But, um, you know, I just think it's a great example of of the possibility that we can of what we can achieve when we all work together and when different sectors of the economy aren't excluded from the conversation. Absolutely. So thank you so much for your time and um, your efforts. I know you testify at hearings on Capitol Hill, so you're keeping a foot in that door too (laughs) and writing op-eds. And I will link to some of your recent um, pieces that I found when I was preparing for our conversation so that our listeners can see them too. And, and, you know, I've never been to Idaho, which is crazy. My cousin lives there earlier in season two, we had a conversation with um, Idaho statesman journalist, Rocky Barker, and maybe that's a name that's familiar to you. I don't know, but now I'm convinced that I have to go. So maybe I'll Well, you are welcome on our farm anytime. Well, I'm not going when it's in the hundred degrees though. I try to (laughs) I try to time my trips to flee the Washington weather when it gets that hot. So yeah, well, usually June, June is when I say you should come to Idaho because everything's green and lush and wildflowers are blooming, but this year everything's sped up a little on the calendar. So, but you could come in August and ride the combine. That would be fun too. experience the hill, experience the hillsides. All right. Let's do it. (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Chelsea. Welcome back, Price. Did you get a nice break? I did. Welcome back, Chelsea Henderson. It's great to reconnect and talk to one of my favorite people, especially my favorite podcaster. How have you been and how did you enjoy our brief little hiatus? Well, I have to say I am a person that is more productive the more things I have to do, which is really sick and crazy. But um, so I don't know that I was necessarily more productive, but I definitely felt the ease of, okay, there's not, I can take those things that I would normally do for the podcast and check them off my list this week. So I got to focus on some other things like our our drive, our spokesperson drive and um, some op-eds. So yeah, no, it was good to focus on the things that I used to just do all the time before we had a podcast. Yeah, it was, it was great to focus on some, you know, ancillary things that are unrelated to the podcast on my end of things. The exciting part was getting Bob back out on the road and working on events and, working with uh, different uh, stakeholders, professors, uh, organizations, and getting Bob uh, scheduled to head back out You know, later this summer as he started uh, speaking to, to Boy State, Tar Heel Boy State, North Carolina, and Salisbury specifically last month. And then you know, as we're revving up for the fall, and if you would like to have Bob, a member of our team, uh, participate in any event that you have going on, please let us know, specifically let me know. Price at Republican.org. We can work to make that happen, whether it be in person or virtually. That is one of the beauties of the pandemic. There is not much that has been beautiful at all about this thing. Um, but the fact that we can now do a lot of virtual events and, you know, we can pull these off in very short and quick amounts of time, Chelsea. So uh, if you'd like to do something with our team, please drop us a line and let us know. I think that that is one thing that has just been really refreshing is seeing Bob back out on the road. It's kind of what makes this feel like we're getting back to business as usual. And he loves it. And I, I feel a new energy in him. And so it's really exciting to see that happen. And likewise, you know, I just have to say, Price, I have been or I was toward the end of season two getting some good um requests, I guess I was going to say recommendations, but they're really requests for content to have on the podcast. And that's really helpful. I always take a look at what you're asking for and see if I know somebody who can refer a guest. So please continue to do that. Listeners. I want to bring the guest to you that you want to hear. So if there is a subject on your mind, if there is a person you, maybe you heard speak or you would like to hear speak, Send me an email, Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at republicen.org, and I will do what I can. Yep. we uh, Corey Whitman, appreciate her coming on this week. You know, but since that we last recorded and podcasted at, uh, what, the end of June, we did have an exciting announcement that came almost right afterwards. I think that they somehow got in our heads to know that we were done podcasting and they were going to wait till we were done to announce it. I'm totally kidding. But, you know, the House Conservative Climate Caucus, Chelsea, our friend and Congressman John Curtis from Utah leading the charge, a caucus that now includes approximately, I think, 65 members, Republicans at last count. Yes, there's a diversified or diversification, so to speak, amongst the caucus members. But 
It's still an exciting announcement and exciting to see a lot more Republicans that are coming on board that are especially joining the conversation and have a seat now at the table. Right. And and one thing that I think is really important to note, Price, on that front is that there are some names on that list who have been people in the past who are either dismissive of climate or said negative things. And I think that's okay because Mm -hmm. I want to give people room to evolve. If we kept Bob where he was when he said that all he knew about climate change was Al Gore was for it, so he was against it, then where would we be today? Mm -hmm. We have to give people space to learn to change their opinions when in the even in the national rhetoric when people um complain or or point out or try to dog somebody for having a different opinion now than they did back when yeah i mean sometimes it's a political shift but also i just think we learn i don't believe all the same things that i believed 10 years ago or 20 years ago so let's as john curtis said give them a year And we can measure their success at the end of that year. But to sort of jump in right away and criticize, well, so-and-so has never done this and they voted against that. I just think it's not really giving the process a chance. And hell, hell, can I say hell on the podcast? You might. Sure. We we have no FCC rules with those kind of words here. (laughs) Um, You know, let. Let's give it a chance and let's see what they they do, because we really don't have any alternatives. We can the best shot to solving climate change is having bipartisan cooperation. And the only way we're going to do that is to change some minds. So let's change some minds. On the other side of the coin, it, you know, as you mentioned, there are some that, uh, you know, have been skeptical in the past. There's also uh, some members that you would expect to be part of the caucus that have long been with it on climate on the conservative side of the aisle that are not, that are not members of the caucus. And there are, there are always different reasons. You know, there are so many caucuses. <laughs> There's a caucus for a caucus. You know, you've worked on the Hill. <laughs> I have too. I mean, there, yeah. there are just tons of them. A lot more, obviously, on the House side because you've got more, a lot more members. But, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, and usually there are there is one specific reason uh, a lot of times why, you know, an ex-member, a certain member has not to join ex-caucus. And, you know, we don't know all those reasons, but it's nothing to be alarmed at. You know, the fact that we have these folks that are still with us and have been with us for a long time, just because they might not have their name listed on the official caucus roster, that's okay. There's nothing to be alarmed by that. Right. I mean, everyone is going to find their best way to contribute. And for some of those members, being part of this caucus and having that apparatus built in where they're going to do some briefings and some, you know, learning. There's some people who are behind the curve and who need to get up to speed. And so that process works better for them. If you're like, and I don't honestly know if he's on it or not, but I'm just going to say Brian Fitzpatrick. He's somebody that if he's not on it, it makes sense to me that he's not on it because he has bills. He has climate bills. He's been engaged. So, you know, everyone is going to do it their own way. And as long as they're doing something, And it's genuine. You know, it's not just trying – they're not just trying to greenwash themselves, right? They're not just trying to look good for the next election. They are truly engaging. Then I think we can't criticize. So let's give them that chance. Let's give them the chance – you know, I have a lot of faith in Congressman John Curtis, so I'm excited, Price. Yep, I'm excited with you. I'm excited. There's a lot of things happening on climate right now. So, you know, when it comes to Capitol Hill infrastructure bill, look, there's still going to be a lot more time for all this to play out. We'll talk more about it, you know, in the coming weeks because we're going to be going full bore, strong, and technically what is, I guess, now season three of the Eco Right Speaks podcast that we will be going strong. 
you know, up until Labor Day, where I'm sure we'll take a, a very brief week break then. But from now until then, man, we're going strong the rest of the summer uh, as we barrel toward Labor Day and getting ready for September in the fall. I mean, it's going to be here before we know it, I hope, because you know how I feel about summer and hot temperatures. <laughs> so, yes, yes, full steam ahead. Let's, you know, welcome back. We're here. Season three. Let's we're just going to do it. We have some great guests. Corey Whitman was a joy to talk to. And we're not going to stop there. Obviously, we have a lot of good voices lined up, including next week, our first repeat guest a friend of the pod, as they say, um, Andrew Holland, who mm-hmm. when our listeners heard him last year in season one, actually going back to season one, he was with the American Security Project working on national security and climate change issues. He is now um, the CEO of the Fusion Industry Alliance uh, Industry Group. So the this is Fusion Energy. We're, our listeners are going to learn all about Fusion Energy, which I knew nothing about, but Andrew taught me and he's going to teach you listeners. So that's our season three, episode two. But next, um, after that, we've got a lot of good things lined up. So stay tuned. If you are a first time listener and this is your first episode, you can go back and listen to any episode that we've done before season one, season two. There's what close to 40 episodes for your listening pleasure. A lot of great interviews that have a great shelf life that are are not dated really in any kind of way. Uh, Go back and listen to some past episodes. Uh, Let us know what you think. You can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. You know, four or five stars will take whatever. If you want to write a comment, makes it easier for others to find this podcast and so we appreciate you taking the time to do so and especially if you have already done so already and we would also love for you to join us at republicin.org forward slash join it takes mere seconds you get weekend review uh, you get correspondence from us polls we ask you we don't spam your inbox in any way shape or form chelsea's weekend review that comes out on friday A lot of great content information. We keep it to a minimum, so we do not turn you off. We want to turn you on to conservative solutions to climate change. That is what we are here for, Chelsea Henderson. That is the best thing that people could do is just get on our website, sign up, get it all. It'll be like a big Chelsea love bomb. (laughs) It will, and we will love you again next week, listeners. And we love everybody that is tuned in, downloaded, listened, subscribed. To any episode so far, we hope you will continue sticking with us as we launch now Season 3 of the Eco Rights Speaks podcast, and we will do it again next week, Chelsea. It's great to be back with you, and we'll talk to you then. Thank you for all you do, Price. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Rights Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at republicen.org. Make sure to visit republicen.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.